This is Top Floor, episode 52. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 52. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. When Dax Cross realized his history degree might not yield the kind of career he was hoping for, he headed to law school at the University of Georgia. Dax, like me, was not a super serious undergrad, but unlike me, he made up for it and then some by graduating at the top of his law school class. That dedication to legal studies turned into four years of toiling away at corporate law before going into business with his father and brother in 2005. A self-described Renaissance man with a fondness for classics like the Beatles on vinyl, Dax is CEO of Revenue Analytics. Today, we are going to talk about what it's like to be a 17-year-old startup But before we jump in, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for burning questions from hospitality professionals. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by Samir, who asks, are hospitality, technology, and services companies having the same staffing and labor issues as hotels and restaurants? If not, why not? This is a good question for both of us, Dax. What do you think? Have you had labor challenges? I would say some labor challenges, but not to the extent that we have seen in the hospitality industry, particularly with the frontline workers at the hotel level. Um, Certainly, it's very challenging from a labor perspective when you look at software engineers are in very high demand, scientists are in very high demand, business experts. So so it's certainly a challenge, but I can't claim that it's nearly as bad as what the hotels themselves are facing. I agree. I think it's always hard for me to find people that I really want to work with. I have a tendency to lean toward hiring less experienced folks and wanting to grow them versus hiring somebody that's at the top of their game. Is that how it works in your company as well? We love to do that at Revenue Analytics. And and we talk about how the company's growth goes in parallel with the individual's growth. And, you know, we love the idea of a meritocracy where if someone is growing and developing, there's no set career path or no set you know rule that you have to be in a role for two years before you can advance. If you're crushing it and you're ready for something bigger, then that's what we want you to do. That's the beauty of owning our own companies. We can make up the rules. Absolutely. Your father, Robert Bob Cross, has been called the guru of revenue management and wrote the definitive book, which I actually read around the year 2000. He worked for Delta and then all of the big hotel and travel brands in his own company. And this is a little convoluted, but I know your brother, Zach, went to work for a revenue management software company. So I have to assume that this was a 
you know, family conversation over dinner that this came up over time. So I have to find out what made you decide to go to law school. Oh, yes. So basically, I mean, I grew up with revenue management and and really with my dad's old company. So I always had a bit of an entrepreneurial bug. And then, you know, we always would talk about revenue management uh, as a family. So we would go to the movies. The movie we want to see is sold out. All the kids would say, ah, oh, come on. Can't they get their prices up? They would make more money. We get to see our movie. Everybody wins. <laughs> trying to go buy people out of their seats. Like I paid $25 for that $10. That's right. right. You're like, these guys don't get it. That is awesome. But then when, uh, as you, as you mentioned, I wasn't the most studious college student. And so I found myself in my senior year, you know, I had a 3.0 GPA. I was a history major and I just couldn't envision that any business would want to hire me. And so my thought was, I can go, I can do well on the LSAT, I can go to law school, and I can come out of law school with a much more marketable skill set. And then in law school, I took business courses. So the whole idea was, I'll be a corporate lawyer, and then I'll shift over to the business side. You started Revenue Analytics with your brother and father in 2005. What made that more appealing than practicing law? I mean, you went to all the trouble of graduating first in your class. So then why chuck that and start the company with your your brother and your dad? Well, so, you know, for me personally, corporate law was a grind. And um, someone else that I worked with once said, I like this enough to be good at it, but I'm not passionate enough about it to be great at it. Mm. And I said, that's a great line of BS. And (laughs) I am absolutely, but it's also true. (laughs) And it was true for me. So I started using that line as well. And so basically, um, my brother, Zach, had the idea that, hey, there's a lot left to be done in revenue management, you know, advancing the state of the art in industries like hospitality that practice the discipline, taking it to new industries. And it just seemed like it would be a lot more fun and and something that I could be a lot more passionate about uh, than kind of the grind of doing deals in the M&A world. Understood. It's funny to me because for someone who has never been a hotel director of revenue, or I don't even think you've worked at a hotel at all, have you? No, that's correct. You you really have a thorough and deep understanding of how it's done and kind of what the issues are that come up for your end user stakeholders, sort of what their pain points are. Can you talk a little bit about how you learned about that? How you were the process maybe that you use to gather those customer insights to really plug into the problems that you're solving? Sure. Uh, first off, I, I appreciate that uh, that sentiment. <laughs> So yeah, I would say that's something that we really tried to hone over, you know, 17 years is to really understand the problem, how people are approaching that problem and then try to design analytics around how someone who's actually doing revenue management is thinking about the problem. So we as a company and I personally have spent, you know, hundreds of hours in kind of side-by-side sessions with people Uh, on how they do their jobs, focus groups, global focus groups. Some of the most fun that I've had in hospitality is, you know, flying around the world and and doing focus groups and and learning from all kinds of different people, both, uh, you know, hotel revenue managers at, at the hotel level, central 
revenue managers uh, who are managing portfolios, people you know overseeing an area or a region. So that has been a lot of fun, and and also we've had a lot of great people who have shared their knowledge and experience with me. Do you think those folks are ever afraid to really keep it real and say like, this doesn't work, here's why, or we don't trust this system, here's why? Or do you feel like you're able to get a pretty straightforward answer? I think that once you really sit down with someone and and show that you're genuinely interested in understanding their challenges and what they see as opportunities and you want to help them, that they'll open up to you pretty quickly. That's good advice, I think, for any business, not just for revenue analytics, right? Listen to your customers. <laughs> when you oh, first, absolutely. When you first started revenue analytics, the company was really focused on custom software for the big hotel brands, among other you know vertical segments that you worked with. You did that for several years before making a pivot that we're going to get to in a couple minutes. What I the way I envision it is that you were sort of the Wizard of Oz, the people behind the curtain making these systems like Prio and One Yield. And in my case, what I'm most familiar with are TLPE and ROS, which were the Starwood systems that you all built. This question might be controversial, but what I remember about the, the Marriott acquisition of Starwood is that everyone loved Roz and Roz got thrown in the trash. Did that feel like one of your babies going off to war or tell me what you tell me what your thoughts are about that? Well, first off, I would say I love your analogy of kind of the man behind the curtain or the people <laughs> behind the scenes. That's very true because, you know, all these proprietary revenue management systems, you know, they're they had their own brands that and names that you've been talking about and and uh we built uh either you know all of the analytics for those systems or or large parts of them so um it was funny for me it was almost like a sibling rivalry with marriott deciding to take one yield over ros because we had built rpo which is retail pricing optimizer within one yield so we partnered with marriott on that and had a big hand in that but we had done a lot more with ros and that had been a huge multi-year project and we just loved the people that we worked with it at starwood and i have consistently heard for years since then uh, from people who use the system that Roz was one of their favorite systems. So that to me is the sad part is that, um, you know, Roz got better feedback from the field than any other proprietary uh, revenue management system that that we've seen. So it was it was sad to to see it sunset. For it's that reason. such a heartbreaker. <laughs> it's so sad, and it's really sad when people feel this strongly about a piece of technology like that. Will tell you the level of a nerdiness and b how great the piece of tech was. <laughs> if you know people have strong emotions around it. In 2018 or 2019, you decided to take all of this experience and learnings from building the custom solutions for hotel brands. And I know you worked with companies in other industries and turn revenue analytics into a SaaS company. That resulted in a venture capital raise. What were the things you were seeing in the industry that drove you to make that change? Or was it more of an internal pressure or internal drive? That's a great question. I would say that there were 
internal and external reasons. Um, from an internal standpoint, we really felt like while the analytics that we had done in these different custom proprietary systems were different and unique to our customers, they weren't that different. And we saw that there was a real opportunity to package all of our deep experience um, and perspective in hospitality revenue management into products. And, and then we thought that would be a more scalable business model for our company than just custom developing systems. But then from an external perspective, we had an epiphany that all of the revenue management systems out there, including ones that we had played a large role in designing <laughs> and building, were kind of built for that on-property director of revenue management. And they were really designed more as decision support systems. So, you know, show that person a recommendation and then give them all the data that they can handle. And that's what they asked for, you know, in focus groups or side, that's what they wanted. And so those systems were great for that purpose. But our epiphany was that the world was changing rapidly and there was a huge shift away from on-property revenue management to above-property revenue management. So central teams of people, either at the brand level, at a management company, you know, at an ownership level, who were managing portfolios of hotels. And it struck us that this kind of hotel-by-hotel, day-by-day, rate-by-rate approach to revenue management was just not sustainable in a world where you're managing 10 or 20 or maybe even more properties. And so we wanted to re-envision revenue management, reimagine it for those central teams and, and say, okay, our system is going to be all about multi-property workflow, managing by exception, and then you know being very intuitive to use so that you can quickly see a recommendation and then at a glance evaluate it and decide to take it and and just you know make that work a lot more scalable. I am going to make t-shirts with the phrase decision support system on there. I think that's so good. <laughs> Were you able to or even allowed to incorporate the work that you had done on all of those custom systems before? Or did you have to start from scratch? Or did you want to start from scratch? Also a great question. From the standpoint of writing code, we started from scratch. But from the standpoint of all of our methodologies and experience, we were able to leverage all of that work. So, you know, people talk about standing on the shoulders of giants. I would say we had a real head start and we knew that our analytics would work and work really well because they were proven based on what we had done in the past. And then we could also layer in new ideas and advancements that we had that weren't in any of those systems. So, for example, special events auto detection is a cool little engine that we have because we've seen that, you know, most revenue management systems have special event mapping. So you can go back and say, I've got this upcoming event. And I think it's going to be like something that happened a year and a half ago. And you map all the dates and over the stay patterns. It, it makes sense, but it's incredibly cumbersome and manual. And the fact is that not a lot of people use that functionality. So we said it would be a lot better just to have an algorithm that is hunting for 
booking spikes that would indicate a special event and automatically accelerate the forecast based on that. Oh, that's so cool. And that's the exact kind of thing that owners say they feel like is missing. So as a result of becoming sort of a teenage startup, I know you consolidated the verticals that your company was working with and sort of narrowed down your focus. And hospitality is one of them and obviously the one that I'm the most excited about. But I think it's really interesting the other verticals that you work in and how they are natural extensions of your hospitality experience. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I think that's one of the coolest aspects of our business. And then we're able to take ideas from one vertical and bring them over to the other and and leverage them there. I actually had a, a friend years ago who called it the, the wheels on the suitcase theory. He said that, you know, pilots used to roll around their bags on planes for years and years. And, but it took decades for someone to say, Hey, why are we all carrying our suitcases? Why don't we roll them around like pilots? And so then everybody, then boom, you know, now everybody rolls around suitcases. And then one day somebody said, Hey, why are we still carrying around coolers? You know, why we should be rolling coolers as well. (laughs) And so that's what we try to do in our, our different verticals. And so um, our other big two verticals are one is media. So we're optimizing the pricing, the ad pricing for radio, television, and digital ads. And so it has a lot of common elements to hospitality. You're forecasting what's the demand for this particular spot, you know, morning drive time. What's the demand? How likely is it to sell out? Things of that nature. And the inventory is perishable, just like a hotel room. Like once the time passes, it's dead. You got it. That's exactly right. So it it has a lot of similarities. There are some differences that you don't have the readily available competitive data, but there are a lot of similarities and and things that you can leverage back and forth. And actually, some of the analytics um, are are quite similar and, and we can leverage kind of common components there. Interesting. And then the third one is manufacturing and distribution, which it does not have the perishable uh, inventory element to it, but it is a B2B negotiated sale. And so it actually has a lot of common elements with group business and hospitality and how we look at group pricing optimization in our group module of into pricing. So sort of applying like volume discounts for lack of a more sophisticated phrase (laughs) to different sales based on how much somebody's buying stuff like that. Yes. And how much discount uh, should someone get based on, you know, what do we think their willingness to pay is? What's their overall business worth, right? Obviously, a group coming into a hotel uh, that's going to do a lot of uh, function space and catering is, is worth more than another one that's not. And then delivering, very quickly delivering a recommended price or maybe a price band right to a seller in an automated way to just let them go do business and not have kind of a back and forth with, in the hotel's case, their revenue management team, in the manufacturing and distribution case, their pricing team. You know, those are all common elements of uh, 
of those two pricing problems. This just reminded me of TLGO, the group optimizer part of TLP. Yep. <laughs> I'm going to have to edit this out. People are going to be like, what <laughs> are she talking about? I know that there are some industries that no longer fit into your niche, but I cannot resist asking you about one project because I think it's so interesting. This was an algorithm that you created for Coca-Cola to blend, to perfectly blend simply orange juice. Can you just satisfy my curiosity and talk about that a little bit? Sure. That was, uh, again, it, it was probably as far afield from pure revenue management as, as we ever went. But we did this work maybe 10 years ago. But it was really cool. Uh, so people that we knew at, at Coca-Cola had a vision to combine their food science um, so they could measure the elements of the taste in orange juice that that made people like it. So, for example, um, sweetness, you can measure the sweetness of an orange uh, with, it's called bricks. So, you know, the higher the bricks, the sweeter it is. That's like can, in wine, same thing. Yes. And you can measure bitterness uh, based on a chemical called limonin. So, their food scientists did remarkable work to say, here is the optimal taste profile for orange juice. And this is the, this will be the best. But the problem is that oranges are different. So, you know, there are different varieties of oranges. There's, you know, Florida, there's Brazilian, and then they're different during the season. So, an orange that's harvested in the early part of the season generally isn't as sweet as an orange that's harvested in the, in the peak of the season. And so, they have all of these different juices uh, that have varying attributes and some are better than others. And so, they brought us in to combine our science with theirs. And basically, we built a, a big optimization equation to say, what is the optimal blend to get as close as possible to that taste that, that, that optimal taste spec all year round? That is so cool. And I'm going to tell you that as you were describing it, I feel like you could take it back to the hotel business with the optimal room type mix. So you could make an algorithm that based on whatever the demand conditions are in a marketplace, this is how many double doubles you need. This is how many rooms with a view, blah, blah, blah. Is that too, am I trying too hard? <laughs> maybe so, or maybe something around, you know, maybe something around channel mix as well. Oh, um, yes. Yes, you know, of That's course. a more strategic, hey, what, what demand should I take at what parts of the year from different channels or segments? It's codename Project Bricks, and we're doing it. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> we like to make sure that our listeners come away from each episode of Top Floor with a couple of very practical, tangible tips to try in their businesses or in their lives. So speaking of beverages, what do you think about the push to incorporate food and beverage and other revenue streams into the hotel revenue strategy discipline? I think it's great. I think that it makes a lot of sense. Uh, those revenue streams drive a lot of profit. And so that's very critical to hotels right now, particularly as we continue recovering from the pandemic. Um, so I think it's a it's a fantastic opportunity. 
But what's interesting is people have been talking about doing this for 20 plus years Mm -hmm. and have not really made much progress. And my personal opinion is that it's because people are still too in the weeds with these day-to-day pricing and inventory decisions. And so there's a tremendous opportunity to have a little more automation with those decisions to free up the revenue manager's time to think more strategically about some of these other opportunities. Ooh, that's a really good point. The hotel business is evolving into a commercial strategy model versus the sort of separate disciplines of sales, marketing, revenue management. What do you think are some of the ways that revenue strategists can or should broaden their skills or maybe make better use of the tools they have to meet this change in our the way our industry is approaching it? Yeah, I, I think, again, that's a really large opportunity in the space. And then they can look at a couple of these things we've already brought up. They can look at, you know, what's their mix of demand. Um, they can look at how are they utilizing certain channels. Uh, what are the opportunities to create demand, maybe leverage a channel that they haven't been using before. You know, those things are things that a system can't do. A a revenue management system needs that historical data to then predict the future, but it it doesn't know what would happen if you've never done something before, (laughs) right? So you bring that human ingenuity and creativity into that. And then as you develop that channel and you start creating demand from it or increasing demand from it, okay, now you can leverage the RMS to, you know, uh, figure out when and where you want to take that demand. So why do you think hotel teams still to this day are tempted to, and honestly just do override their RMS? I think a little bit of it, um, not to blame my dad. Uh, <laughs> That's your dad's but, fault. The end. <laughs> but, right. but, you know, the original revenue management systems were very, they were kind of built from the inside out. So scientists designed the algorithms that were going to optimize revenue. And that was at the heart of the system. And then, you know, they gave them to business users. And so then, I mean, I've seen revenue management systems where, the system asked the user if they were going to override the demand forecast, they don't say, oh, I don't think we're going to get 92% occupancy on Tuesday night. I think it's going to be, you know, 82. They would say, if you want to override that system forecast, you need to say, what's my demand going to be by arrival night and length of stay across all days that, that touch that Tuesday night stay? Because that's the way the science works. I and, see. Okay. And it needs to it needs to know that to, you know, figure out what's the optimal stay pattern. But a user, that's crazy. I couldn't do that. <laughs> you know? And so then it just didn't they just didn't work well with the way people think about the business. So then people got used to doing using it as decision support. I'm gonna look at the data in the system, but I'm really going to make my own decisions. Whereas Our experience has been if you can design the analytics more around how a person thinks about the problem, how a revenue manager thinks about it, what are they thinking about when they make that decision, and then how do you make it easy for them to interact with the system on their own terms, you know, like by overriding the forecast, forecasted occupancy for Tuesday night. Just let them do that really quickly, then you get a lot more 
trust and transparency that drives adoption. And then that's what enables that automation. And, and then people stop, you know, once they've reviewed four, five, 10 price recommendations that they agreed with, they'll say, you don't need to show me every little price recommendation. Why don't you just show me things that are going to be more than 10% or 15%? It sounds like one of your big maybe jobs is fighting this like distrust hangover from the early days of, of revenue management systems. So we've reached the point in our show where we're going to tell the future, maybe cast some magic spells, and then we'll come back later and see if we were right. Why are hotels backward in technology? I mean, I really think that it goes back to, you know, an, an owner's perspective of wanting to spend money on things that are guest facing. And that that is it's just common sense that that is going to drive revenue. And then, you know, you think about what a back office in a hotel looks like, right? They don't put any money at all into that back office. You cram people in, you know. You <laughs> Poor Mike is like shipped in from the 40s. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then you could go out into this beautiful grand lobby from there, right? So I think that that has been the view of technology. Uh, but I really do think that that's going to change and it's already starting to change, you know, just in our daily lives. I mean, we carry around supercomputers in our pockets, right? We use apps. So we use software for everything. And so I think people are starting to realize that there is a tremendous opportunity to drive efficiency and to drive revenue growth in hotels with technology. And then probably most importantly, there's a generational thing where I think the, the generation of people who are working now in hotels and, and starting their careers or early in their careers, they grew up with technology and, and they can't imagine doing their job without it. These digital natives, like their eyes are rolling in the back of their head when they see those green DOS screens or whatever. That's right. <laughs> so what is next for you and what's next for your company? So, you know, we're just, we're really excited about where our Into Pricing product is. Uh, we've, you know, only launched it basically two years ago, and that was in the heart of the pandemic. So, as we're seeing uh, recovery happen, we're bringing a lot of great new customers onto our platform. We're getting a lot of their feedback. So, really, the big thing that we're hearing from from people right now is that they need help with the whole financial forecasting element of of their job and so that that's taking a lot of time and so one of the big things that we want to look at over the next year is how can we bring some automation to that job to make it a lot less tedious and and again to the same theme focus revenue managers on thinking more strategically rather than constantly reforecasting and rebudgeting. Excellent. So normally right now, I would invite you to head down to the loading dock and I would hit you up for a crazy story from your life. But you told me a crazy story only 5 or 6 episodes ago. So you convinced me to tell you one of my crazy stories instead. Yes, that's fantastic. How many have you told on these? <laughs> I don't know. Gosh, I feel like three or four, but I have three or four thousand. So this will be a good time to get one out. So we are going to head down to the loading dock and I'm going to spill the beans. 
going down. All right, Dax. So here's the story. I went to FSU for undergrad and I worked at restaurants most of the time I was in college. I worked at this mom and pop seafood restaurant. The owner's son was one of the managers. It was pretty downscale, like fried seafood platter kind of thing. But they also had a lobster tank. And you know, I was a pretty experienced server at this point. I could handle a lot of tables. And I had been there long enough that I had a bunch of regulars. So, you know, people would come in and ask for me. And that was one of the rules that you could skip the rotation if somebody asked for you specifically. So Friday and Saturday were our busiest nights. We were in the middle of a like dinner rush. I had a full section, but one of my regulars came in with like, I think eight or 10 people and they came in for their lobster feast. So I feel like these people owned like maybe a construction company or something like that. And then they would have a, every Friday, they'd have like a big family dinner celebration and get lobsters for everyone. They always asked for me. So that was a high dollar table for me. I was very excited started like pulling the setups. Like I had a bowl, you know, plastic bib. I'm telling you, it was a little downscale. Discard bowls, all that stuff. All right. So I brought all that out, got their drink orders. Everybody ordered sweet tea. So I went back to the kitchen and, you know, we had those like giant red plastic Coca-Cola cups. Do you remember those that were like... Yep. And you could taste them. Do you know what I'm saying? Like they had a weird taste. Um, So I went back to the kitchen. I was filling those up and then I was going to like, you know, carry those out. There were double doors. So there was one door that was for in and one door that was for out. So I'm approaching these double doors, carrying out the drinks and another server came flying in with a pitcher of sweet tea. Now keep in mind, I mean, I know that you are from the South, so you are familiar with a half a pitcher of sugar and a half a pitcher of hot water makes the simple syrup to become the sweet tea. Like it is sweet, like sticky. Okay. So I'm heading out. He's heading in. He looked upset. I was sort of trying to ignore him and dodge him. Like I thought maybe he had a rude table or, you know, he was in the weeds. No, no, no. He was not upset. At least he was not upset at any customers. He was mad at me. So he starts screaming in my face that I was stealing tips from him, stealing all the good tables, that I had you know, all the best tables in the restaurant. It wasn't fair. And I was doing something wrong and, and the thief and some other choice words. And then he took his full pitcher of sweet tea and threw it directly into my face and all over my shirt. <laughs> no yes. way. Yes. So that is outrageous, right? Like that feels outrageous. I push through yes. the doors. I'm like outraged, like looking for help. Like where's the manager? Where's the boss? Let Somebody needs to punish him. And they were just all standing there laughing at me. So did he get fired or in trouble? No, he did not. Did I walk out and never return? Yes, yes, I did. (laughs) Oh, really? Wow. (laughs) It made me so mad. And it was so indicative of the attitude, which was like, 
you know, you take your life in your hands working here, basically. <laughs> so that is my story of how I left the uh, glamorous world of fried seafood and moved on with my hospitality <laughs> career. Well, good for you for refusing to be disrespected. I like that. I, you know, I was probably uh, acted a little rashly, but. I was 21 at the time. So hopefully I've learned to uh, calm my temper down since then. Dax Cross, thank you so much for being here. I know our listeners got great tips and great insight into the discipline of revenue strategy. And I really appreciate you riding up to the top floor. Excellent. Thanks so much, Susan. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 52. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 